Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John is joined by Khaled Al-Bay, a Sudanese artist, political cartoonist, and civil activist who shares his experience using art to spark conversations during the Arab Spring. Later, I continue the conversation with John and Will, and we explore the role the internet played in influencing political attitudes in the region. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Khaled Al-Bay is a Sudanese cultural producer, artist, and political cartoonist. Khaled, welcome to Babel. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been doing political cartoons for years and years. How did you get started doing political cartoons? I started doing comics. I really liked comics, uh, reading translated DC and Marvel comics. After that, I was introduced to the two things that collided the two worlds that I was interested in, which was politics, which I wanted to know more more about. Because at the time I was a teenager, my dad had to leave Sudan and so on. So and comics, of course. So my dad, he started getting these two Egyptian political cartoon-based magazines, which is Sabah Al-Khair and Rosal Yusuf. And this changed my life, really. This is the sort of early 1990s, mid-1990s? This is exactly 1996. I was 16 years old, and I was in Doha for two years now had to change schools, had to change educational system. I used to go to a, a Catholic school in Sudan, ended up in an all-Arabic school in, uh, in Doha. And I was just very frustrated as a teenager, of course, of leaving my family behind, leaving home. And we're in this very new country. We don't know a lot of people. So yeah, political cartooning really kind of gave me the way to think about how can you criticize the situation you're in, you're in a place where you're not supposed to criticize, whether it's in Sudan under the new Bashir regime or whether it's in Doha where everything just is starting up right now. And so it was amazing discovering all these artists. During the Arab Spring is when your identity became known as a really prolific, powerful cartoonist. And one of the characteristics of a lot of your cartoons during that period is they ended up being stenciled on walls throughout the Arab world. Did you design with an intention that your art could be stenciled? Absolutely. Absolutely. As I said, you know, I lived in Doha and at the time, graffiti is is definitely going to get you in trouble, especially here because everything is like squeaky clean and everything is new and all of that. So I did my work. And at the time, of course, the arts of Banksy really stood out because he was also using art to talk about politics and also to talk to the public about politics and to satire. So I started to do work in black and white, very simple, using pump culture. And I thought if I can stencil it, I'll make it as if people can stencil it. I'll make it as if it's something that you would love to wear on a t-shirt. Because one of the biggest issues that we had as well was people don't want to talk about things. And all the cartoon that we had at the time, or most of it, was very old school. Like It was typical editorial cartoons, a lot of text and the inside jokes and so on. And I wanted to bypass that. I wanted to have something that's international, something that everyone can relate to, because I thought that was one of our main issues in the region is that 
our message is not getting through to the other side. So like we're here, we're listening to news about us. We're listening to news from CNNs and the BBCs. And they're talking about us because most people in the, in the Arab world, the education is in two languages, Arabic and English or Arabic and French. So we do understand what the West thinks of us. And it was awkward, really, because it's like you're watching someone gossip about you while you're there. So I really wanted to bypass that. I really wanted to do something that is our news from us in a way that's international, in a way that a lot of people understand it and relate to it. And I didn't want to make it about one country. I didn't want to make it about Sudan because it's not about Sudan. The same issues that we have in Sudan is the same issues that people have in America. It's police brutality. It's racism. It's the same issues. It's global issues that need to be talked about. And the idea that this area is a mess. So always here, people talk about the region, is that this was always a mess. And this is really what I wanted to challenge. You talked about having a dialogue. And one of the, one of the striking things is you really are almost entirely internet-based rather than traditional editorial cartoons that get sent out to readers who then look at them and change the page. Your most active platform seems to be Facebook. There is something intimately interactive about the way your career has unfolded. What is that conversation like? How does that conversation influence your art? I mean, we're the generation of the internet. I grew up with the internet from the dial-up connection to like now the 5G. I grew up with every stage of it. The age before social media and microblogging, I grew up when the Facebook and uh, became what it is today. And I saw the rise of Twitter and now, I hope not, but the fall of Twitter. And at the time, that was what was needed. I didn't work in a newspaper. I tried actually to work for a newspaper, but I was actually kicked out of an editor's office. And that's, I think, one of the most aspiring things that ever happened to me. Because first of all, he's like, where are the bubbles? Where are the speech bubbles? Like, this is not funny. And he said, this is going to get us in a lot of trouble. And uh, he's like, Ibni, uh, you know, like, I think you should find something else. And he kicked me out. And then I thought about it. I was like, how many people are going to read this newspaper anyways, right? If I have something online, if I have my own blog, if I have my own MySpace, or this is what I'm going to do it. So I started with MySpace, I started with Flickr. So I, I kind of went up the ladder with social media and, and the internet. And then I kind of now came down the ladder of that as well, of trying to get out of the internet. What do you mean by getting out of the internet? I mean, it's not the internet that we had, it's not the internet that we fought for. It's not the public square that used to have these conversations and that you know, when you post a cartoon or people have a conversation from from different points of view but it ended up with algorithms and the policies that ended up that it's basically the people that like your work are the people that are supposed to like your work so the conversations is not is not happening as it was before at least not to that degree and in the meantime in these last 10 years we also understood from research that it's no one really agrees online. No one really changes their mind online at all, right? It's sad that I just found myself kind of running in this hamster wheel of, am I adding anything new? I don't know. So that's why I like now, I really decided to take a step back and look at what I'm doing and, and work on other projects that will make it easier for us to come back to an internet that is different. But in the meantime, I really think that I would love to step out. I mean, I still work, I still try to do as much as I can with cartoons, but it's not the right platforms. I think where the internet 
is now is exactly where news, newspapers were 10 or 15 years ago. The censorship, how divided the attention is. And of course, the people that read one newspaper are known. This is the type of people that read this newspaper. And it's exactly what the algorithms have did now with this is exactly the people that were following my account. And I don't want that. This is not why I started. I started because I wanted a conversation, a global conversation. So you talked about the impact that the internet had on you as a 16-year-old, as a 20-year-old, as, as you were sort of growing up. What impact do you see on the generation below you? Today's 15 and 20-year-olds, are they really different from your generation? How are they different in terms of their worldview, in terms of their openness to other ideas? Do you find them substantially different because the internet is different? Or do you think there's something about young people that's always creative because they're young? I can't say that the internet is different. I think the internet evolved and it will keep evolving. And with that, our rules and how we look at things will evolve. But the most important thing about the internet is the amount of information that someone can find, especially the young generation, in a click of a button. Now it's not Google anymore, it's TikTok. That's, that's becoming more of the search engine now, right? And how dangerous that is as well. Who does TikTok belong to? And, and where is all this information going? And it's very complex, but at the same time, it is true that they have the whole world of information on their fingertips, but it's also what comes after that, which I don't think a lot of them realize because that's just the reality for them. And this is exactly how our generation looked at newspapers and magazines, that this is the truth. This is how you get information. So I think it's just the stage of where we are right now. It's very similar to how the world pre-internet was at a certain point where we were trying to find a new way to communicate. I found striking in another interview you talked about how when you're reading Superman comics, Arab countries had different supermen and the characters were different. Is that more true or less true? Is there more of a unified Arab culture because of the internet, because of communications? Or do we still see countries or pockets that are, are more insular because of the algorithms and the targeting you've talked about? One thing I think that shows that the region as a whole kind of wants a, something, a, a point to unite about is the World Cup right now. Most of the region was united around Morocco, for example, a winning team. This is, this is what we're looking for. These players that are being kissed by their moms in front of the whole world, and they're putting up the Palestine flag. And it's all of these things that are really intimate to the region's culture you know, and was kept away from the newspaper at a certain point. And now are kept away, shadow banning, the new censorship, right? Are kept away from the internet to a certain point as well. I mean, during the whole Sheikh Jarrah events that were happening, Arab-speaking people had to like basically write Arabic without the dots for them to bypass censorship or shadow banning in, on Instagram. So yes, there are things, of course, that unites us and brings us together in, on the internet. And it's because of this globalization, because of this algorithm, one of the main things that I think bypassed everything was was the World Cup and and the Moroccan team. So yeah, there are these points. There are these uh, small beams of light that unites. How do you think about balancing hope and despair in your art? I mean, there's a critical angle, but it's not all dark. Do you think consciously about the balance? I do. I really do. And I try as much as I can to always bring hope to my work 
not only for the people who are looking at it, but also for me. I need hope. I need hope to go on as well. These last 10 years since the Arab Spring were very tough. I mean, we've watched people that gave most of their lives. They're in prison now. Ala Abdel Fattah in Egypt, poets like Doma and so on. Everywhere. The Syrians, by the thousands, gave up their lives and stuff. But I always try to inject hope into my work because this is what I need as well. If a person like Ala Abdel Fattah can now still talk about hope, it's the least that we can do is to talk about hope as something that's not fictional. What's the most inspiring thing you see in the Arab world today? It's definitely the World Cup. Definitely. I'm very happy I caught the last three days here in Doha. And the amount of art from the Arab world, the amount of young social media, quote-unquote, influencers who are in Doha right now, it's unbelievable. Like It's something that I don't think I've seen since the Arab Spring. People united over something joyful, over something different, and saying that we are like the rest of the world. We can do things that are happy, that can bring people together. That this region is united, not only because of ethnic groups. No, we're all united because we all live in this region. Historically, where it's here, it doesn't matter if you were Amazigh, it doesn't matter if you're like, Kurdish, it doesn't matter. We're here. We all belong here. And this is what's happening. It's such a beautiful thing to see. How do you sustain that enthusiasm? How do you sustain that togetherness? Because the Arab world in many ways has been breaking apart much more than it's been coming together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's hope that something positive can happen, that people can come together. Even when Tunisia is going through what it's going through now, you know, Sudan is trying to get it back together. The World Cup and the, the unification that we see right now and the positive messages and the hope for all the region kind of brought, we don't really just need a superficial stability that comes with the forced that can continue. You know, the stability that can come with, okay, there's, there's different policies, different parts are different, think differently. Democracy can bring interesting results. It doesn't have to be forced by an army. It doesn't have to be forced by the good dictator, quote-unquote. There's different views. There's If you're giving the chance, different things can happen. It doesn't have to always, always end up in a civil war. But there's also a way in which all this celebration about the World Cup, and in some ways the criticism of the World Cup, is about Qatar's insistence. This isn't about politics. We're not going to be making political statements. You're a political cartoonist. And in some ways, you're seeing this moment of maximum hope being at one of the most avowedly apolitical moments in the region. Does that sort of force a, a tension in your mind between the politics and, and political cartooning and, and the criticism and the moment of hope of where the region needs to go and where young people need to take it? Absolutely. I think everything is political. Everything is political. It doesn't matter what people claim. Everything is political. And it comes from a political point of view at the end of the day. Whether it's buried deep or whether it's superficial, it comes from that. And having the World Cup here, having all this artwork and all these political cartooning and all this artists and music that comes from here to the rest of the world, reflecting a, a new thing, even with the criticism, all of that, that is political. And that is definitely an excellent conversation to have. Because at the end of the day, we get to see what we always get to see, how the West looks at us, right? But at the same time, we get to 
think about it objectively. Yeah, okay, this is happening. How are we going to look at it? How are we going to defend ourselves? Do we need to defend ourselves? Do we need to defend the sheikhs? Do we need to defend these authoritarian regimes? Is that is that what we need to do? How are we dealing with this? So it all, for me, it brought back to mind the idea of how we can all work together, the solidarity, right? Of the moment that in my 40 years of life, I only witnessed once, which was during the Arab Spring. This is the second time that I see it now. It's not as political in the surface, but it is. It absolutely is. Khair al-Bay, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for the very interesting conversation. John, Will, thank you so much for joining me again. It's good to be with you, Abna. John, this week you spoke to Khalid El-Bay and held a really interesting conversation with him. And one of the things that really stood out to me was when he spoke about his relationship with the internet. So that is a platform where he built his brand and his following, but it seems that he's ready to exit the internet. And I was wondering if either one of you found that statement to be a little surprising? I did. It was surprising for a number of reasons. First, his interest in sparking a discussion. There are a lot of people on the internet who just want an audience. But I thought it was really interesting that that what he talked about was he wanted to spark a discussion. And there's something about the way the internet is developing, which is trying to keep individuals on the internet, which gives you more and more content that you like, but opens fewer and fewer discussions. Now, there are governments that are trying to game that, and governments are trying to use it, some governments in the Middle East. But it struck me an interesting take from an artist's perspective of how the internet's evolution changes the nature of art, changes your ability to start a conversation because the internet is so busy keeping you on the internet that it's not giving you things that make you think, it's giving you things that make you nod. And what's interesting about that is that if he didn't have this desire to spark conversations and discussions, then he could benefit a lot from this. He would gain a dedicated audience of people through these bubbles that consistently like his work, that are probably going to engage with it consistently. Presumably this would help spread it. And we know that he wants his art to be spread quickly. He said, John, when you asked him about if he designs pieces in a way that makes them more likely to be stenciled, he said, yes, he wants it to without be replicated. It, without hesitation. Yeah, exactly. So he wants this to be replicated, but not just for the sake of replication. It's not like he's trying to go viral for the sake of it. And so, yeah, it's it's interesting that in some ways what might serve him from a audience perspective is what undermines him from the intention of his art. So that struck me. Yeah. I found it surprising, but I also found that I felt small sadness because you have incredibly talented people like him, someone who's using his art to spark political conversation. And they are being pushed out of a space where you have access to the public because of how algorithms now work. So that's yet an well, additional factor, right? I'm not sure he felt he was being pushed out. I think he felt that his work was only being shown to people who agree with it. Yes. And so it doesn't have it doesn't exactly. have the same catalyzing effect mm-hmm. that he hoped 
it would, uh, as Will points out, I think in many ways, it would give him a greater audience. But his business model is everything's free. He does everything under a Creative Commons license. He wants people to download it. Yeah. But he wants to use it to catalyze these conversations, which aren't happening because people are just saying, heck, yeah, I really agree. And that's not why he's in this business. Yeah. And like to that extent, I definitely agree. Where I'm coming from is the fact that I've seen so many activists in general and advocates leave the Internet for a myriad of reasons. This is yet like the latest one of them, which is we're no longer sparking a conversation. Some of them are flooding out because of, you know, authoritarian states surveilling them. Others are getting threats. So it's either becoming an unsafe space for others or no longer a productive space. So that is where I felt a little sad because we're losing a lot of individuals who are capable of sparking a conversation on the internet. And I want to follow that with this question, which is, what do you think are the alternatives to getting trapped in what Khalid described as being a part of a hamster wheel of news. What are the alternatives to this news bubble? It is very, very tough. The nature of algorithms means that from the moment you open your phone or you open an app, they are already working. They're already determining what news you first see when you search for information. They're determining what news you first see. And it is really difficult to consciously escape from those bubbles. I think some of the most productive ways to do that are just to make a really concerted effort to try and read from a variety of different sources. But even that is tough. And I remember, I think it was the Wall Street Journal had a feature on their website, which was called Red Feed versus Blue Feed. And it would show you how any typical social media feed would look on any given issue if you are coming at this from a conservative perspective or a liberal perspective, you know, abortion, gun rights, things like that. It was completely different. And so we just live in these completely different universes where there are different truths. But I don't think it's just social media. I really don't do social media. And yet, the world has unlimited information that's available depending on what you look for. The 200 emails I get a day, the newspapers I read, the sites I find. I mean, we literally, as we've discussed in the program, we are competing against sleep for people. Anytime you want to find more information, there is more information out there, not just on what somebody wants you to read. Anything you want, anything you're curious about, you can find more information about. And and that's where I think the difficult thing comes in, both for Khalid al-Bay on the one hand, for the CSS Middle East program on the other. How do you get them to choose? That's what they'll spend their time on rather than talking with somebody, rather than reading a book rather than sleeping, because that's what we're competing against. And there's this constant challenge that everybody can turn you off at any point. That doesn't happen in face-to-face conversations, but we know there are fewer and fewer face-to-face conversations happening. And I think 
what he described is partly something that there are fixes for, but partly something I think there probably aren't fixes for it. When I look at my kids, they spend a lot of time dealing with their friends through devices rather than dealing with their friends. And I know certainly in Washington after COVID, I spend a lot less time face to face with colleagues than I used to just because people aren't physically together. So I, I, I do wonder how much of that is just a, a change in life. Yeah. I mean, I certainly see that on my morning commute here because I take the bus and you just you look around and you're surrounded by people with their heads down looking at their phones and kids there with their iPads. And it's just it's incredible that people don't even want to make eye contact anymore, which might not be the safest thing. You know, I, I still remember you know, being on college campuses yeah. and in the, the 1970s, college campuses had people turn their the speakers on their stereos out the windows playing to quads. By the mid and late 1980s, people were walking around with headphones, listening to music, each person in his and her own world. Now, people aren't even looking. As you walk around, everybody's got their eyes on a screen. Mm -hmm. They're not engaging in any way with the world around them. And rather than just hearing music, which you're thinking about, you're constantly reading, constantly reading, constantly reading, constantly watching. And the question is, under those circumstances, what are the debates about? What are the conversations about? And what we see is people being incredulous mm -hmm. that any thoughtful person could possibly disagree with them. And on the debate piece as well, I, an important aspect of this is that everything is on demand. So even if you're consuming the same information or the same content as someone else, you might not be consuming it at the same time, which means you might not be able to discuss it in the same way because even TV shows that you can binge them now. For a lot of people, they're reading, watching different things or the same things, but at different times. And, and that, that's a piece of that, this as well. Yeah, that really is a, it's an interesting point and a profound change yeah. from when I was much younger. And there really were topics of conversation. People would come together in the morning and talk about something that happened. And in many cases, everybody is coming from a different place. And this binge culture has made people impatient for consuming information and when they consume it. People want everything right now, instantly, and they over flood themselves with information. So that said, let me ask you this. So all of this information out there and the data that is floating in the ether at times, well, most of the time is spun together and curated to create these bubbles that, you know, match your interests and your personality. Who do you think benefits from these information bubbles? We certainly have a lot of governments that are trying to, to curate those bubbles within their borders. Sometimes governments trying to curate these, these bubbles outside their borders or commercial interests. As I say, I think for the, a lot of the internet companies, they make money keeping you stuck on the internet, whether it's Meta, whether it's Twitter. The whole point is the longer you are there, the longer you are racking up profits for them. They're indifferent to what you do as long as you're there. And that's created an ecosystem which fuels not only outrage, but incredulity that there can be people who don't agree with you because you have been consuming a thread that, that tends to validate precisely what 
you think? I think that's exactly the point. It's outrage that sparks a sense of righteousness that your previously held beliefs are correct, rather than shock that prompts a sort of debate that makes you question perhaps what you previously believed. And so great outrage is great for getting people to click on things and click like or reshare or whatever it might be, but it's not good for these discussions going back you know, to... And the interesting thing in the Arab world, in the 1970s and 80s and even early 90s, state broadcasters created that ecosystem and it was a, an echo chamber and, and people all knew what the parameters were. One of the reasons Al Jazeera was so interesting in the mid-1990s, launched in 96, was because suddenly it gave people access to ideas they'd never heard before. Interestingly, where Arab media has gone now is more into more back into the echo chamber, that the desire for more diversity in news, diversity of viewpoints, in some ways has collapsed. And people take comfort in hearing things that are comfortable, that reinforce what they think. And it's, it's, there were some scholars who talked about how satellite television in the Arab world was going to be a huge force for democracy in the region because it would expose people to all kinds of views and people would want all kinds of views. And I think it's, it's a complicated story. I, as I've argued that that satellite television had an idea in the Arab Spring by creating a single narrative that was not in the control of individual governments. But the public's appetite for debate, for working hard to reconcile different views, for trying to bridge and synthesize I don't think that's been proven out. I think people have wanted to see stuff that makes them feel good, that makes them feel secure, that makes them feel like they're joining to defend against a threat. And it hasn't really created that messiness. In some ways, it's created an appetite for tidiness that governments have, have tried to advance. I agree with that because... I feel like us Arabs, we've lived in these echo chambers for decades. And so when the Arab Spring came, some of these regimes collapsed and social media was no longer censored. We were out there in this world full of white noise and you could no longer hear your own thoughts. And it got scary to feel or think your whole life that you lived in a homogenous place and then realize that you never did. And I don't think we have yet reached a point we, where we're able to reconcile our differences and accept each other for them. And that's why so many of us have reverted back to wanting to be inside that echo chamber, going back to the status quo, because it feels comfortable. I remember growing up, the... And you grew up in Libya. Yes, I grew up in Libya. One interesting fun fact about Libya is that the state had access, obviously, to television frequencies. And while we had access to satellite, it meant that state-sponsored television could interrupt our frequencies whenever they want to show us Gaddafi's speeches. So as a child, we'd be watching cartoons, or as a teenager, I'd be watching Friends. By the way, we had Friends in the <laughs> Middle East. And all of a sudden, in the middle of a scene where Rachel and Ross are fighting... <laughs> 
lo and behold, Gaddafi shows up on the screen because we have to listen to Was him. Was he too. not in Friends? No, he wasn't. Oh. <laughs> Honestly, missed opportunity. I feel like he had a penchant for drama. Um, <laughs> but that was our world. But then the revolution came and all of these different ideas just sprung from the ground. And it was exciting at first, but after a while, it did get scary. And I watched my own parents struggle with trying to accept these differences. But talking about debate and differences and things that have caused drama, the World Cup. I think we we should probably try to hit this note because Khalid spoke about the World Cup and in his view, he thought that it produced unity. How do you see that intersecting with Arab politics or whether or not it was actually non-political altogether? Will wrote this really interesting piece about how the efforts of some people in the West to politicize the World Cup and to use it as a way to, to, to shine light on discrimination against uh, LGBT individuals in the Arab world didn't really help LGBT individuals in the Arab world. There was a huge effort inside Qatar to depoliticize the World Cup, to say this is just about competition. Let's leave the worker rights stuff. Let's leave the LGBT stuff. Let's leave other things. Palestine snuck in some, but there really was an effort to make this not at all about politics and quash people who wanted to make it about politics. I thought it was interesting when he talked about how unifying it was. I wonder if that's what a lot of Middle Eastern governments want to do. They say we can do the unity thing. The way we do unity is we don't talk about politics. I've certainly had presidents in the Arab world tell me that it's their view that politics divide, democratic politics divide people, it polarizes people. You have to take the politics away, do what the people need, and then the people can come together. And I do wonder if the unity he was talking about reinforces the desire of Arab governments to not have democratic politics to just have things that bring people together, build feelings of connection. And their feeling is we can just be the paternalistic leaders who provide for the people. That probably works better when there's more money and you can provide for the people. And it it doesn't help you deal with difference. It also leads you to positions where you can make mistakes and there aren't checks. And to me, that's one of the challenges the Arab world is likely to have in the next 10 years. These authoritarian leaders who double down on ideas that don't work out and it's too hard to build back to a different place, to go back. They they end up being overcommitted to bad ideas and it becomes too hard to reverse and they get trapped. I was really struck by the Palestinian flags at the World Cup, though. I agree that there was certainly a desire to limit politics and overt signs of politics, whether in support of Iranian women or LGBT individuals or migrant workers or whatever it might be. But I saw the decision to allow Palestinian flags to be flown at various points as a very political decision and a and a decision to show that in some ways the region is not post-politics, 
because perhaps there are some governments that have normalized with Israel and did that as a pragmatic step and a step that in some ways showed that they felt the region is post-politics and in a new pragmatic era. And the support that we saw for those symbols of Palestinian solidarity seemed to me to be saying we are not yet in that phase. I mean, we'll see if there are longer term impacts of this. But it struck me that the protests touched on something that is still very much there, in some ways a unifying symbol, but a symbol that some have sought to, some in the region have sought to to stop being a unifying symbol. Right? But you know, then the other challenge is that Palestine in many ways has been for so long the only protest you're allowed to have. Mm-hmm. And the amount of support that actually goes to the Palestinian people is de minimis. So it becomes theater rather than moving for change. What would change in Palestine look like? How would you get there? What would the steps be? What can governments do? I think the reality is Arab governments have been very cynical about Palestine. And most of the Arab publics, and there are pockets of of real difference, I think, but most young Arabs have kind of moved on. There still are people, and I run across people, who feel it's a deep moral issue. And I respect that. But I also think there are a lot of people who say, what, there have been 75 years of chances? We're just going to move on. But the Palestine issue is still a sort of a feel-good, this is how we can show that we can protest, because it's become the only safe thing you can protest. Most countries in the Middle East, although, of course, in some countries now, it's not so safe to protest. Well, with that, thank you so much for a great conversation. And I suppose we'll see you all next year. Happy holidays and happy new year. Happy holidays. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website. And you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.